everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Industrial Theory. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I am so glad you're here today. I am very excited to introduce my guest. He is such an inspiring person. I think you're going to love this podcast episode. Uh, Chad Calland is the Chief Executive Officer at Vecta Environmental Services, which is based in Gonzales, Louisiana, here in the United States. Vecta offers a full line of industrial services, including tank cleaning, hydroblasting, and more. Chad helped grow Vecta, Vecta from a 2011 startup boasting only one client and only four employees into a regional leader in the environmental and industrial services sector. Chad is also a community activist working with anti-racism organizations in Houston and New Orleans. He serves on the Houston City Advisory Board of Shelters to Shutters, a nonprofit organization addressing the issue of homelessness. Additionally, he is a member of the Mankind Project, a global brotherhood of nonprofit charitable organizations dedicated to personal development, multicultural awareness, and community service. Something really cool that Chad has been working on uh, is the founding of the Second Story Project. He is the co-founder, and the Second Story Project is an organization that helps clients create more equitable, diverse, and inclusive workplace, which we talk quite a bit about in the show. His commitment to creating safe spaces for people to share their experiences and learn from one another is truly remarkable. Chad shares his insights and passion throughout the podcast, and I believe his message is one that we all need to hear. Not because we need to force change, although change is necessary and inevitable, but because we can all be inspired by one another through sharing our personal stories and allowing others to more deeply understand where we come from and how our belief systems were shaped. I appreciate his statement that we can fully respect and honor one another, even if we agree on absolutely nothing. This episode is insightful and inspiring, both from an industrial cleaning perspective and from a diversity and inclusion perspective. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Hang tight and I'll be right back. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Chad, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to get into this interview. So uh, let's start off by having you briefly tell us about Vecta and uh, and why you started it back in 2010. All right. Well, um, Vecta is a, we're a, a full service environmental industrial firm. Um, we, we started, uh, actually my business partner, Kenny, started Vecta. Um, we, we were working together at another company and um, we had a client that really liked the work we were doing wasn't necessarily happy with the company we were working for um, and reached out to Kenny and, and basically said, you know, start your own thing. I'll give you all my work. Uh, and so Kenny did. And, and the customer has, um, unfortunately, once Qu- Kenny quit his job and started his business, the job he was supposed to start on uh, got postponed. Um, so he was kind of a company without a client or anything else. So he, he really just started hustling from there and, from that point, you know, we've, we've grown to now, you know, we've got seven offices in four states and about, you know, 350 employees along the Gulf Coast. So kind of been one customer at a time, one employee at a time, just building. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about you. So yeah. you went from being a director of field services with FCC Environmental to being a CEO. Yeah. So can you tell us about that journey? Sure. Well, you know, like I said, Kenny and I have worked together and then when, um, I left that company to go to uh, FCC, um, moved from New Orleans to Houston, uh, and then was was working there and, and kind of growing their field services division. Um, 
for them while Kenny had, you know, had started Vecta and we stayed in touch. Um, and, uh, it just felt like, uh, I, I'd done as much as I could at FCC, um, and, and given the, the organizational structures there, um, really thought that, uh, working with Kenny would be just a more challenging, more exciting thing to do. Um, so, you know, Kenny had asked me initially to, to join with them. Um, and it just what the timing wasn't right. My wife was pregnant. I just moved to Houston, a lot of stuff going on. Um, but when I joined him in 2013, it just felt like um, timing was right for both of us. Um, we brought on our, our full-time uh, CFO, Selena Ray, at the same time. So um, she and I joined in 2013. It just felt like it was the timing was right. Um, and Kenny and I have complementary skills. Um, he's really, really, you know, great on the field operations. He knows more about that side of the business than anyone I've ever met. Um, I have a different set of skills, so it, it matched up really well for us. Oh, it's great to be able to have a partnership like that. I always say surround yourself with people who have talents that are uh, opposite of Absolutely. yours and you can make such a well-rounded team. <laughs> people who are smarter than you. And I've, I've been able to do both, fortunately. Oh, that's good. <laughs> me too. Uh, so tell me uh, then, did you did you come on as the CEO? And, yeah. and what was it like making that leap? Um, it, it wasn't, you know, at the time it wasn't a, a big leap. I mean, when I joined, we still just had one office in Gonzales. We had a, a small, you know, we were relatively small at the time compared to, you know, where we are now. Uh, part of what I did is I brought on, uh, put an office in Houston at the time. Um, but it, it really wasn't that big of a leap. I mean, the, 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 the role of CEO of a company that uh, the size we were then um, really wasn't uh, what it is now. I mean, it was, it was everything from doing, you know, helping out with safety to helping out with website designers, a lot of, you know, helping put the company together and bring it to scale. Um, but it was, it was a much smaller operation at that time. So it wasn't a big leap. I mean, our P&L responsibility was still just, you know, primarily one office. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So as you've, uh, as you've grown in the role as the company's grown, yeah. uh, what do you think is the best thing about being the CEO of an industrial services company and what's the hardest? Um, so I don't know that, that it really has to do with being a CEO, but I think the best thing about being involved in industrial services um, in general is really just the people, um, the, 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 the people that work in this industry. And, and, you know, my background was really environmental work, but even in environmental and industrial, um, it's really just a lot of hardworking people who, who've earned everything they have. You know, they, you don't see a lot of, you know, you know trust fund kids deciding that they need to go into hydroblasting, right? Um, right. It's, a, um, it, it's really just a, a lot of people who, who really want to come to work, do a good job, um, be rewarded for their work, um, and be appreciated for what they do. So really, um, it's a joy to come to work with people who enjoy what they do. And, and that's probably the best part. Um, the flip side of that is, is the hardest part is dealing when, you know, it's a dangerous business, as you know, um, and y'all do a great job of trying to make it less dangerous with the equipment that, that y'all make, but it's still a dangerous business. Um, so dealing with, with accidents and injuries where people get hurt and um, we've been fortunate to not have any major, major injuries, but even the small ones are, are bad. So the hardest part is, is going to see someone in the hospital who's been hurt, um, talking, you know, calling someone's wife and letting them know that 
their, you know, their spouse had an accident or something. That's the hardest part for me. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I, I, I share the exact same uh, feelings. I love this industry. In fact, I was actually speaking just last night up at our local college and somebody said, how did you get to be a CEO of a, uh, you know, a, a water blast equipment right. manufacturing company? I was like, well, it was an accident. And I thought I was destined for far more glamorous things <laughs> than industrial that's, cleaning. That's really <laughs> but, I but I love the people in this industry. I love the people that that work at Stone Age. I love our customers. I love our partners. Uh, It is just a a really unique uh, industry. And I think think, uh, that you're right. It's that we work with people who are here to work Mm -hmm. and who are trying to make good livings for their family. And they're honest and they Mm -hmm. have strong work ethics. And and I I, I really appreciate that. That's how I was raised. So it it resonates with me as as I've been on my own leadership journey as well. So I share that with you too. Yeah, it's a a great group of, you know, collectively the industry is just, it's a great group of hardworking people. And I have a, one of our employees always says, you know, no one ends up in this business on a winning streak, right? And it's <laughs> kind of a funny way to say it. But, but I, I think it's, you know, people find their way here and, and the people who make a career out of it, you know, it's, it's a good way to, to provide for your family and do an honest day's work, make it, you know, it's possible to make a really good living doing it. And you, you know, you can see the, you can see the fruits of your labor at the end of the day. You can turn around and see what you did. And it's, uh, it's a great industry to be in and the people make it uh, what it is really yeah i agree and i'm glad to be part of of making it safer too because when i'm asked that question of what keeps you up at night it's that i get a phone call to say that our one of our tools you know hurt somebody and it's such a scary uh it can be such a scary industry because it is so dangerous Mm -hmm. and we have a lot of people coming in who haven't necessarily been properly trained on how to use this equipment and and so there's, uh, and then of course it's high pressure water. So right. something can go wrong. It can be faulty material, all kinds of things that are, are frightening to me. Yeah. And, and like I said, the smallest, the smallest accident can be catastrophic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I share that. Uh, all right. So tell us a little bit about your leadership philosophy. What do you think separates good leaders from the great ones? Um, that's a good question. I think, uh, I think what makes a good leader is someone who can get people to believe in the, in the plan, right. Can, can get everyone to agree on the game plan and the vision. Um, but a great leader is, is someone who can get people to believe in themselves. Right. I can think that, um, you know, I want everyone at Vector to do a great job at Vector. Um, but I also want them to be great at home and I want them to be great in their community and if they decide that Vector is not where they want to be, I want them to be great there too, you know. Um, so I want to I want to be able to elevate people um, or help them elevate themselves really to where they really believe in themselves and that that um, you know that they can do whatever they set their mind to. Um, they can solve their own problems because um, I think you can you can make a game plan like I said, and you can get people to buy in. But really, what makes you know someone better is if they make the people around them better. And that, that's what I think it separates them. Yeah, yeah. That's that's such a great answer. Uh, and I completely agree. I think one of the most memorable moments in my leadership journey has been when the wife of uh, one of my employees came um, up to me and said, I just want you to know that 
my, our marriage, our life is so much better because of, you know, this person working at my husband working at stone age. And that is like the best thing because it has such a ripple effect, right? It's not only do you show up and are you engaged in your job, which takes better care of your customer, which has ripple effects that way, Mm -hmm. but you go home happy and your kids are happy and they go to school happy. And the ripple effect is just so significant. Absolutely. That's awesome to hear. And I think, you know, one of my, my kind of story or philosophy I tell everyone is, you know, they say goldfish will grow to the size of their container. You know, they just need a big tank, clean water and food. Right. And I think in a lot of ways, people are the same way. You know, if you give them a big tank and, and, and show them that there's room to grow and you give them clean water and kind of keep the distractions, give them a, a safe place to work where, you know, they're valued and then feed them and, you know, challenge them and, and let them rise to the occasion. People will grow to the size of their container. And I think that, you know, I guess the, the, when you asked earlier, the best part of, of being a CEO in this business, um, it really is that, I guess, what is watching the people grow. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I think that takes a lot of humility. Uh, and, and it's one of the things that I've always appreciated about our conversations. And I appreciate about the best leaders is that they understand it's not about you. It's really about the collective. Right. And I think that story about a bigger tank is so important because for me, if, if my employees go on to do bigger and better things and, you know, are successful leaders and, and create, you know, a better life for their family, then that's a huge win in, in my book. But I think that it takes humility to be able to, to say that answer that I'm here to serve you and to help you become the very best that you can be. I agree. I agree. All right, let's talk a little bit more about Vecta. So despite COVID, I know that Vecta is growing quickly. Um, and then being a small player in a, in the services market, how are you differentiating Vecta from the bigger players? We kind of value ourselves and, and position ourselves as a kind of a team of specialists. Um, you know, we have Kenny's background. Initially, it was really tank cleaning, you know, high has tank cleaning. Um, so we have a whole crew that's really, really good at high has tank cleaning. We have another crew that's, you know, specializes in just turnaround work. So, um, and we have another group that can do just cutting door sheets. We have a hydrovac division where we have 30 trucks of, you know, 30 hydrovac uh, trucks in our fleet. Um, so we do, a, for a company of our size, we're really diverse and we're really skilled at what we do. We don't have a lot of, um, you know, most of the people that we brought in already have years of experience in the business when they come to us. Um, so we're able to pr- provide a really high quality of service and, and not that, that you can't get that with some of our competition, but um, that really is what separates us. We can't put 200 people on a turnaround, but we can put eight crews out there doing a really good job, you know, with, with people who really know what they're doing. Um, you know, it, prime example is we just went to Florida for a turnaround and it's a new customer for us. And the contractor that was out there, you know, was, was typically doing a job in about eight days and we were rolling up on our third day coming home and the customer just couldn't believe that we were done that quickly, but it's because we, we don't have, um, you know, we're not, we're not spreading everybody out and trying to make everybody do everything. We sent six crews over there that could do the job and do it right. And, and, leave the customer with a good, clean product. Yeah, that adds tremendous value. 
I mean, downtime for customers and uh, yeah, it's it's the name of the game, right? So I can see why they want to call you back if you're saving five days on a turnaround. Right. And and we're up front with, you know, if we're trying to get into someone's gate, you know, we're, we're up front with them and we tell them, you know, if you need 150 people, we'd love to be 50 of them, right? We, we but, but we're not going to send out, we're not going to get a hundred temps out there with us just so we can get the whole thing. Um, because we want to be able to do our portion of the job really, really well. Um, and, and I think that's what we do. And that's why we've been successful. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it goes back to that safety thing, right? right. When you have to go do a lot of temps who don't necessarily understand how to hydroblast, you are just adding more risk uh, and, you know, have to, to risk going home and have to tell, you know, somebody's family that they got injured. So I, I think that's a, a unique way to approach it. I think a lot of people just think the bigger, bigger is better. And I don't believe in this industry, bigger is better. There's nothing that has proven that bigger is better. No, I, I don't think so. And, and the reality is, that, you know, if 60% of our crew out there is temporary labor, my customer doesn't care. They all, they all represent Vecta. So if, if someone isn't doing a professional job or, or isn't doing what they're expected to do, the customer doesn't care that they're a temporary, you know, temporary labor, they're vective in the customer's eyes. So, you know, mm -hmm. we want to send out a crew that is professional, highly trained, works safe, and is really in, you know, is there to get the job done and leave. And, and we'll, we're okay taking a smaller bite, but we want to prove ourselves to the customer that the work you gave us is going to get done. Right. Um, and we've been fortunate to, to start a project with just a portion of it, but we end up being the last company to leave because they like the work that we're doing. And, and, you know, when we finish our portion, they give us another portion and another portion. So um, it's worked for us. We, we, we're really happy with the quality of service service we can provide. Yeah, that's great. That's great. All right. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. How has COVID impacted you and do you see it affecting um, our industry next year and beyond? So we've been affected, you know, some areas have been hit harder than others. Um, we've been fortunate too to, to be able to keep most of our people busy through this time. And um, we, because we don't have large crews in some of the, the larger refineries, um, we've still, still been able to keep everyone busy. So even when they, you know, the plant may shut down, but they, they still need their crews and they're doing the, the mandatory maintenance work we've been able to keep that that portion of our work going so um you know we're not we're not where we wanted to be budget wise but we're ahead of where we were last year which is for us a, a good win um yeah and i'm and i'm hoping that you know but with uh once once the calendar turns to 2021 um and these turnarounds start kicking off and and we're i'm hoping 2021 is busy for everybody yeah, me too. Me too. And I'm optimistic. I think it will be. Yeah, yeah. I do, I do too. I, I think it's, it's for sure it's going to be better than 2020. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> I, this year I'm ready for it to end. Okay. It's been the it's been the most challenging uh, year of my professional career for more reasons than COVID. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now I'd like to pivot into another passion a passion of yours, yeah. which is uh, diversity and inclusion. So. Um, I know you've got some really uh, exciting things going on. So mm -hmm. can you share some of the work that you're doing through uh, the Second Story Project? Maybe uh, tell us a little bit about what the Second Story Project is. Absolutely. So um, I've been active in anti-racism work for about a decade, um, working with different organizations in Houston and New Orleans, 
Um, and uh, working with a, a therapist I know here in Houston, uh, we recently uh, founded an organization called the Second Story Project. And, and really what it is, is a, it's an alternative to traditional DNI programs. Um, I think that DNI programs are great on the surface, but I don't know that they really get, I don't know that they change behavior and, and change uh, the, the results, right? I don't, I don't know that they deliver the results that they're intended to for a lot of different reasons. Um, but what, what we really focus on is value in every voice. It's a facilitated dialogue where, you know, every voice is heard. It's a, it's a place where um, even the voices that think that DNI is just ridiculous and there's no place for it, that voice is heard and, and recognized and say, that's great. Now tell me why you believe that, what experience led you to that belief? Um, and we're really looking for commonalities instead of difference, right? We're, we're, um, we're looking for common ground where we can, you know, we might not agree, but we can find common ground and then together we can look for solutions um, that change the culture of a business really by, by getting people to talk um, and recognize each other, um, value each other's experience. Um, and, and in spite of, you know, not agreeing on everything, um, being able to come together and then find common solutions. And so you're doing that through storytelling? Yep. Primarily through storytelling, through, you know, through sharing your experience, you know, so, you know, my experience leads me to believe one way, right. And, and I understand that someone else who believes something different, their experience led them to that belief, right? So I'm going to tell you my story and how I got to believe this. And I'm going to listen, you know, with with focus while you tell your story and, and how you got to believe that, right? Um, and from there, we can find commonalities. And, and like I said, I might not agree with your opinion, and I can argue the opinions and I can argue um, policies and those things, but I can't argue about your experience, right? Your experience is... Is, is as valid as mine. Um, and if we can get to that level, it's just a common, you know, common recognition and appreciation of each other's stories. Um, we believe that by doing that, we can create more collaborative, more creative, more productive teams. Once people, you know, have, have kind of start to trust one another, work together and get across, get past those, those differences. Real. Yeah, and I, th and I think you're right. I think if it, once we start telling stories, we realize our own stories, we realize that we're all far more alike than we are different. Absolutely. And just watch the, any news cycle, it's hard to believe that. But when you get down to the fundamental basics of it, we are all far more similar than we are different. And so I think that this is a, a, a really unique approach that you're taking. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of research that shows, you know, the, the benefits of facilitated dialogue. It's not a debate. Um, it really is, you know, I'm going to tell my story and you tell yours. Um, and there's, there's so much, there, there's so much fertile ground to till from that, um, that we believe, uh, you know, it's, and it's not a one-time workshop. It's not, we're going to go in, we're going to give you this information. You can check your box that you did a, a DNI training. Um, it really is a partnership where we work with you know, key people in the organization um, to identify, you know, what the problems are, if there are problems, right? And, you know, not everyone has a problem, but there's still discussions that can be had um, that where we can 
we can grow together. Um, and then we partnership, you know, typically it's a, it's a six month. If we, you know, if we come to terms, it's a six month partnership where we're, we're working with your people on a continuous basis to continue the conversations, continue the dialogue. And then we really want to turn it over to the clients and that it's an employee driven, um, program um, where they take ownership of it and, and they handle it. And, and then we're, you know, we're in the background if you need us. Um, but we really, you know, we really want to change the cultures of, of the organizations by getting people really to just trust. It's, you know, I, I told someone, it's kind of like we sit at the intersection really of communication training, organizational development and DNI because it's it's all of those together and I think that's the only way that you really um, impact change. Yeah, otherwise it is just a class that you check off and, right. and say, okay, I've done it, but it, you know you don't remember anything and you go back to just doing your work the same way that you've always done it. Right, and and there's you know Harvard Business Review did a, a article a while back on you know why traditional DNI programs don't work and a lot of times. You know, if, if someone feels like they have to go there and they just if they're trying to police behavior and dictate behavior, um, a lot of times if it, it creates backlash and, and people don't buy in. Then if the, if the leadership of the organization doesn't take it seriously and, and present it as really a, something that's going to be ingrained in the culture, then the employees know that, too, and they dismiss it. And it just doesn't, um, you know, it's just a training for a training sake. You know, it doesn't have any lasting impact. So why do you think DNI is so important to our industry? I think it's important to every industry. Um, I think it's important, you know, to to recognize and appreciate difference. Um, I think is is essential to being part of, you know, being part of being in this country. I think that there's so many different cultures and points of view that aren't mine um, that I do myself a disservice if I'm not open to hearing about them, right? Um, but what what one of the things that kind of opened my eyes to our industry in particular is that back in the days when we could do trade shows, I was at a, a trade show and I know what my workforce looks like. I know what my employees look like. You know, if I do a safety meeting, there there's a broad spectrum of shades that are going to show up. Um, but when I was walking through the trade show, it was all white people, right? Um so why does that not just white people, white men, <laughs> right? So why does that uh -huh. happen? Like how you know if if the leadership of the organization or the people who are representing your organization at a trade show um, don't reflect the the people doing the work, why is that? Um, so you know it, it it really opened my eyes to look around this you know this big convention center and realize it's just a bunch of white men but we all know who's out doing the work. So, you know, what prevents, why aren't they in the room? And and then why aren't they in the room when, for any discussion? Uh, yeah. Why aren't women, why aren't people of color in the room? Um, so I, I, it's critical that, um, in my opinion, that, that the, the people leading the organization represent the people doing the work of the organization. Yeah, I really like that. I remember when I first started in this industry, I had someone, you know, pretty prominent within the industry tell me there was no way that I was ever going to be successful as yeah. a female. And I even think that there was some of like the active working 
against me right. uh, that happened. And I'm not the, t- I, I like, I am so anti-victim being the victim um, that, you know, I just have always pushed it to the wayside, but that has stuck with me for, you know, for, for I've almost, I've been doing this for almost 14 years yeah. now. And this was at the very beginning and feeling like everything I've ever had to do in my life is prove myself, like prove myself into engineering school, prove that I was smart enough to do this, prove that I could, you know, be work in a man's world. Right. And, and I have all kinds of privileges being a white woman um, that I don't ever take for granted or I try not to take for granted. But I can't even imagine how it feels to just always be like right there doing the work, mm-hmm. but never having a voice at the table to impact because I definitely have felt some of that push out, uh, being pushed away, pushed out. And so I think it's a a really powerful message that you're sending and and that you're actually living. Thank you. I had a, a friend of mine who's a successful. He's a surgeon in Houston. He went to Ivy League schools, undergrad and and, and uh, medical school. He's a black man. And he said, um, and I suspect it's probably similar to your experience. Um, he said that living life as a black man in America and, and possibly a woman in this industry, he said he feels like he's always the away team. Like, you know, the refs are against you. The calls don't go your way. You can still win. You can still win the game, but you kind of got to play a perfect game. Um, And and that really, that image really stuck with me about, you know, um, so if I'm the home team, what am I doing to, to level the playing field? Yeah, I think you're totally right. The, the standards and expectations of doing things perfectly are, I think are so much higher. I feel that pressure for sure. Uh, because I feel like it's going to be more critical, you know, I'm going to be criticized more because, oh yeah, well look, it's because she's a woman in this industry. And I feel like, I mean, I feel like that's broken through now. Uh, I certainly felt that younger in my days when feeling like I wanted to prove, prove myself. And I think now after, you know, 14 years of, of being able to lead a successful company, you know, I finally feel like I'm being taken more seriously. But I know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. I know exactly that feeling. So it's like, that's a great analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, having co- having conversations about racism and discrimination can be very uncomfortable. I'm always afraid of saying the wrong thing. And sometimes that makes me not say what I want to say. And of course, that's the whole purpose of the anti-racism movement, right. right? Is to not just stay quiet, even though you don't believe in what's being said, but actually have those conversations. Yeah. So how do you help people um, tell their stories? And how do I help tell mine? Like, how do you start the conversation when people are feeling uncomfortable and and like they're going to say the wrong thing? Right. Well, at, at the Second Story Project, I think a, a big portion of that um you know, we, we do a, a really good job of creating what is really a safe space, not like in the college sense of a word where, where I can't hear opinions I don't agree with. Um, we create a safe space where every voice is, is recognized and appreciated, but we also set guidelines around what's acceptable behavior and what's not, right? So we, you know, we don't allow people to be attacked. Um, and an important thing is to really assume the best intentions, right? Assume that everyone in the room is there to learn and grow. Um, and to understand that part of that is part of any learning is making a mistake, right? If, if, if I'm not making mistakes, I'm not trying. Um, so, but when you do uh, is to own the mistake. Um, and I think people will forgive you if they know your intentions are, are good, if you have if you have the right intentions and you're accountable, right? And you say, 
yeah, I, I really stepped on it there. I, I screwed up. Help me understand what I did wrong so I don't do it again. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's, um, you know, I, I think too often we put the the burden on target groups to teach, you know, me how to be better, right? Um, and that's not what I'm what I'm doing is. Uh, we really want to say, you know, it's your responsibility. It's my responsibility to do the work, to, to educate myself. But then when I do make a mistake to own it um, yep. and, and just and, and try to do better next time. Um, far too often, I think that the fear of making a mistake keeps keeps white people quiet. Um, and it's, it's a it's a real fear. And it's there, there's a cost for for speaking up. Um, but you know, we, we try to minimize the, the danger, I guess, make it as safe as possible. Yeah. If we could all just live by the uh, the mindset of everybody showing up with good intentions, right. the world is <laughs> such a different place, yeah. right? But we're, you know, we always want to just like, you know, the, it's like the us versus them. Mm-hmm. Like there's always an enemy out there. And, and, and I just believe, you know, very similar to you, that if we all just assume that we have good intentions and you don't take things personally and you give people the room to make mistakes mm-hmm. and to say the wrong thing and and to go on that journey together, it can be such a powerful place. Right. But if we all just want to get defensive about everything immediately, you can't even have a conversation. Nope, nope. And then it, it automatically makes it a it's a debate at that point. It's right. It's not a, it's, it's no longer a, a dialogue. It's a debate and, and each person is trying to convince the other one they're, they're right. Um, I think Brene Brown has a great point. Uh, and when she talks about assuming the best intentions, you know, she's like, you know, what does it cost me to do that? Does it cost me anything to assume that everyone has the best intentions? Right. And um, it, I think you're right. I think if more people started from that premise, um, and that's why it's one of our primary guidelines when we set the tone for for any dialogue that we have is one of the guidelines is assume best intentions. Yeah, I also think another important piece of it is is inviting to have the conversation. And, and when you're all sitting in a room thinking about, OK, we're here together, we're going to to assume the best intentions and we're all invited to be part of the conversation. I just had a, a back and forth text message with my father who we have um, opposite political beliefs and uh, and he sent me a text that was like, you know, antagonistic. And then I was like, I don't want to have this conversation with you. I don't want to actually have this text message back and forth with you, you know? And he said, well, you know, you just can't even have this, you can't even have this conversation. And I thought a lot about it. And I was like, and I thought about it was if he would have invited me, yeah. Hey, I'd really like to have this conversation with you and invited me into the, into it where he was actually like, truly interested in what I have to say rather than, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, a random text message, like, <laughs> you know, like hate mail. <laughs> and so I really thought a lot about that, about this whole idea of inviting, right? Mm-hmm. I actually want to understand how you think about something, not to try to change your mind, but to, to be part of it so that I can understand, assume good intentions and inviting in to be part of it. I think that's such an important thing. And that's what I love with what you're trying, what you're trying to do with the second story project is you're inviting people to have that conversation. And it sets an entirely different tone rather than this 
debate is combative, you know, I'm going to try to convince you to believe what I believe. And if I don't, if, if you don't, then I think you're a bad person. Like that is just not going to work. Like we are headed down the path of further destruction if we if we keep doing this. Uh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, just a general curiosity, like you said, so absolutely. Tell me why you believe what you believe. Like what, because you, you're not going to, you're not going to insult me into your side. Right. But if you can tell me what experiences led you to this belief, I may never agree with you on the policy, but, but I will absolutely appreciate and respect you and your position more um, because I've taken the time to, to hear you. That's beautiful. Excellent. All right. Well, we're about to wrap up. So I always ask one question. Okay. Um, what piece of advice, what's the nugget of goodness that you would want everybody listening to walk away from this podcast today? Yeah. Thinking. Um, you know, I, I think really right now, what I would say is what we touched on earlier is just assume the best intentions of everyone. Right. I think that, you know, whether sitting in a position as CEO of an industrial services company or um, just an everyday citizen who might get cut off in traffic, right? If, if I assume the best intentions of everyone, um, it's going to make my life better. It's going to make their life better. Um, and I think that it, it, that's uh, probably about the best piece of advice I could give everyone to start from today. That's great. That's great advice. Good. All right. So how can people find you and where can they go to find out more about the Second Story Project? Okay. So, so they can find me... Um, at, through Vecta at uh, C Calland, uh, which is C K A L L A N D at VectaEnvironmental.com. I'm on LinkedIn and, and all that. Uh, to reach the Second Story Project, they can find us at SecondStoryProject.com um, or they can reach out directly at info at SecondStoryProject.com. It's all spelled out. Um, it's a bit long, but uh, it'll it'll get to us. Um, and we would love to to talk um, about, uh, you know, just creating space within the organization to have conversations. The conversations are happening in your organization, whether you whether you know it or not, right? Um, and it's going to be better for you and your organization if you're a part of it and actively facilitating those organizations rather than having them splinter off by themselves. That's great. Excellent. All right. Well, Chad, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a wonderful conversation, very inspiring. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to having more of these conversations with you and the second story project. I, I, I think it's really cool stuff that you're doing and, and I'm excited to support you. Thank you, Carrie. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been great talking with you. All right, everyone. That's a wrap and, uh, I'll be right back. Thanks for listening, everybody. I really do hope you enjoyed that show. What an inspiring person Chad is. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Stay safe wherever you are in the world. And I look forward to hosting you again on the next episode of Industrial Theory.